Our opening words this morning come from Valerie Cower, a Sikh activist, and this is her Sikh prayer for America. Why Gari Ji Ka Kalsa, Why Gari Ji Ki Fateh. In our tears and agony, we hold our children close and confront the truth. The future is dark. But what if this darkness is not the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? What if our America is not dead, but a country still waiting to be born? What if the story of America is one long labor? What if all the mothers who came before us, who survived genocide and occupation, slavery and Jim Crow, racism, sexism, and xenophobia, and Islamophobia, political oppression and sexual assault are standing behind us now, whispering in our ear, you are brave. What if this is our great contraction before we birth a new future? Remember the wisdom of the midwife. Breathe, she says, then push. Now it is time to breathe, but soon it will be time to push. Soon it will be time to fight. For those we love, Muslim father, sick son, trans daughter, indigenous brother, immigrant sister, white worker, the poor and forgotten. And yes, yes, the ones who cast their vote out of resentment and fear. Let us make an oath to fight for the soul of America. And the words of Langston Hughes, the land that has, land that never has been yet, and yet must be. With revolutionary love and relentless optimism, and so I pray the sick prayer. Nanik nam kardi kala tere bane sarbat da bala. In the name of the divine, in the name of the love within us and around us, we find everlasting optimism. Within your will, may there be grace for all humanity. Waigari ji ka kasa, waigari ji ki pateh.
morning and welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Karen Schofield Lega, and my preferred pronouns are her, her, and hers, shorthand for person. And I'm so glad that you are here this morning as we continue our monthly theme exploration of emergence. Visitors and guests, we hope that you've got a blue name tag that helps us to know that you are visiting among us. And uh, we're here to answer any questions that you might have. We love talking about what makes this community so important to us, and we're eager to hear what it is that you are seeking among us. Um, we hope that you will join us after the service for cookie and coffee and conversation. And also, please consider sharing your email with us on this gold slip that you find in your program. We send a weekly update about activities that are happening here in the community and in which we are participating beyond our walls, and we'd love to have you join us for those things. You can drop it in the basket when it passes later in the morning. I want to remind everyone to please silence your noise-making electronic devices so that you and your neighbor can be fully present this morning. But while you're at it, please do go ahead and check in on social media. When your friends know you're here, they can join us online or on a future Sunday here in the building. I now want to invite forward Gwen Quatt, who will, um, she's with our anti-racism, anti-oppression, multicultural congregational working group, who, Aramac for short, and um, so we are very pleased that she will be reading our statement of purpose this morning. way we get to hear our important values in each other's voices. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive to, through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacity. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. If you are new to our community of children and adults, we warmly invite you to join us as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. As Gwen lights our community candle, I invite you to join in our candlelighting words, which you can see here on the screen. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Bell in solidarity with people around the world. This week, especially holding on our hearts the people of Syria. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our heart all that hurts in the world.
and let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. you now into a time of meditation. Please ease your body by making your posture relaxed and comfortable. Close your eyes or soften your gaze and breathe. This morning you will experience a meta meditation which comes from the Buddhist tradition. This style aims to cultivate loving kindness, a heartfelt aspiration for unconditional love of all beings. The practice consists of repetitions of phrases like, may you be happy, or may you be free from suffering. And the scope of the meditation gradually increases, at first focusing on oneself, then others, especially those who may be difficult to love, and finally, all beings. And so, begin by reflecting to yourself one of these phrases. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be whole. And now for others. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be whole. Now for all the world, may all be filled with loving kindness. May all be peaceful and at ease. May all be whole.
workers and the Catholics too. The atheists and agnostics, Muslims and the Jews. We people from all nations, all colors and all
very big words with high emotional impact. Things that I think we all agree on in principle. I mean, I hope that no one here approves of injustice or oppression. I mean, we might disagree about what is or is not injustice, but on the whole, we all like it to just go away. But we know that deep down, systems of oppression and acts of injustice do not just go away. They're not something that if we ignore, will simply conveniently fade away into the night, never to be thought of again. It takes time, effort, personal growth, and a lot of discomfort to achieve a more just, more just society. And when I think of that discomfort and that effort, a song comes to mind. And if I were a different clergy leader, I'd even try to sing it for you. <laughs> but I know my limitations, and I care about this community. <laughs> so I won't try. The song is titled Paul Robeson, and it the band The World Inferno Friendship Society. I don't expect any of you to be familiar with it. Meet up and ask your bands after a platform. That would be a lot of fun. You look them right in the eye, you stare and shout them down. But joy, our joy, it don't really care for fighting, whereas oppression is just waiting around for you to blink. Joy beats oppression, but oppression will make you pay. And it probably says a lot about me that I consider this song to be my get up and go song. I start most days listening to it, because it gets energetic enough to really get my blood pumping first thing in the morning, has enough vision to get, give me focus, and there's enough jaded realism to keep me grounded. And I can't really think of a better message than joy beats oppression. And as much as I love this song, titled Paul Robeson, I'm sort of embarrassed to admit that it took the music of a white punk band from New Jersey for me to even learn the name Paul Robeson. He has since, from the inspiration of the song, deciding to learn more about him, become one of my major heroes and an inspiration. For those of you who don't know, Paul Robeson was an African-American singer with this beautiful, deep voice that could melt any heart. He was known for singing a number of spirituals, songs of hope and resistance, both from the African-American community, but then reaching out, singing songs from all people, anything that really spoke of a better world. In addition to his singing, he was trained as a lawyer and was quite the activist in his own right. He used his prestige to advocate for the rights of the oppressed throughout the world during the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. He was drawn towards communism because there he saw a system where all people could be truly free and equal. And he wanted full rights for everyone. He saw the intersections of oppression and knew that we all had to be free, we all had to be equal. In his time in communist Russia, he reported that it was the only time he really felt on par with other humans where the society treated him equally. 
And when he came back to the States, as he did eventually, he did it because he saw himself as an American and wanted to fight for freedoms in his own country. And his activism put him at terrible risk. As you can imagine, a black communist sympathizer in America during the 50s did not fare very well. <laughs> he was put on the government blacklist, had his passport denied. The government under McCarthyism did not like this famous musician traveling the world, disrupting the status quo, and calling America out. But even though his passport was denied, there are some amazing stories of him not letting his voice be silenced. There was one time where he gave an entire concert over the phone, piping it into another country where the speaker played out in the concert hall. He also one time drove to the Canadian border when he had a show scheduled that he couldn't make, stopped in America, had the stage set up facing the border, border patrol watching, making sure he never crossed the lines. His Canadian audience also right there on the Canadian border watching. And there he's saying, piping it out with the music and with the voice of freedom crossing those boundaries. He would not be silenced. His advocacy could not be stopped. In 1953, he was called before the House Un-American Committee to give testimony. And if memory serves correctly, he called them out as the un-American ones. And this time, he attacked America's history of slavery and civil and human rights abuses. One member of the committee asked Robeson, if you love Russia so much, I'm paraphrasing, but if you love Russia so much, why did you come back to America? To which Paul Robeson replied, because my father was a slave and my people died to build the United States and I'm going to stay here and I'm going to have a part of it just like you and no fascist minded people will drive me from it. Talk about courage. Talk about a poor legal maneuver. <laughs> That's when they denied his passport. <laughs> but I'm just always amazed by his story and his message, and equally amazed by how random it was that I learned about him. Because going over his life, I see passion and dedication, a willingness to risk his own comfort and safety to continue the struggle, I see this visionary intersectional thinking between race and class. I see a truly global mindset, and it's just awe-inspiring. And it's a story we need to hear. It's a story we need to know. But for me, if it weren't for that one punk band that idolizes him, I wouldn't know the name. And I have a graduate degree focusing on counter-oppression. And his name barely came up, maybe as a footnote here or there, but easily would have walked away not knowing about him. And out of all of the lessons of Paul Robeson's life, the one that stands with me above all others is that we must throw ourselves into the fight against oppression, even knowing we might not win. Even if we don't know what victory looks like, we need to take that risk. And to be honest, taking risks has always been one of my biggest stumbling blocks. <coughs> and getting involved in counter-oppression. I always was a person who needed answers before getting truly engaged. But if you would ask me, I would have always claimed, of course I support social justice, and I want to end oppression. 
For most of my life, however, I was never challenged on those beliefs or on my stances. I was a good Facebook activist, not that I'm putting that down. <laughs> Publicly political, um, there was never an issue of injustice in the news that I wouldn't comment on and urge people to pay attention to. And I would, of course, write countless letters to my representatives. Um, coming from South Carolina, one of my senators was Lindsey Graham, and I often referred to his office as my pen pal. <laughs> because every couple of weeks, I would get a letter response from them, usually dismissive, um, but they came enough, and I started going, my name is Zebulon Green, and they're sending a letter to me every couple of weeks. I know there's one staffer who's just like, oh, this guy again. <laughs> and it's a fantastic way to start getting involved. Any act of raising awareness, any act of causing um, disruption, even if it's just making people send you a letter, is a great way to start. But during this time in my life, I had a reputation for being a bit of a social champion and was praised for my friends for it. And I liked that praise and the good reputation and how actual little effort I was putting in to earn it. I put myself at no risk. I worked with very few people and I was accountable to no one. I was just being loud alone at my computer. And then I started seminary at Star King School for the Ministry in 2014. I moved to Berkeley, California that August and I remember that summer being glued to my TV screen, as many of you might have been as well, watching the news come out of Ferguson about the death of Michael Brown at the hands of the police and being shocked by how quickly so many people mobilized against that injustice, followed by the incredibly brutal way those protests were shut down and feeling this outrage that this was the country that I lived in one part of me really wanted to go to Ferguson and join that movement, but at that time in my life, I was not that person. I wanted to be, but that seemed really scary. And I was about to start grad school and did not want to get sidetracked. Fast forward just a few months to when there was a lack of an indictment against that officer. And this is when the Black Lives Matter movement really came onto my radar in a way that I could not ignore. The protests were no longer just happening in Ferguson, but they were becoming a national movement. And my community in Berkeley, California, my classmates, my professors, my friends, they all hopped into the fray very quickly. They were marching every night. They were facing tear gas, arrests, physical violence. They had a passion that I always wished, but for the first time, I continued, not for the first time, for many times, I continued to just sit on the sidelines and watch. I admired everyone I knew who was going out into the fray, but I resisted joining, and I created justifications for that resistance. My stumbling block, and maybe many of you have had similar thoughts, was I needed to know what progress would be made. If I was going to put myself at risk, if I was going to take that bold step, I needed to know the plan. I needed to know that minds could be changed. I needed to know the legislative ask. I needed that. If you want me to step on up to an interstate and get arrested, what will we achieve, I asked. 
not only did I want a vision for a more just society, I wanted the 10-point plan to get there. And it was not an attitude that was helpful to anyone. Except for maybe the status quo that benefited from people sitting on the sidelines and nitpicking the activists getting involved. There was a crisis of systemic loss of black lives. No one could deny it. But there was no easy plan to exist that could change that system. So I was asking the impossible for me to step up. I was saying that you have to convince me that you can win before I stand up for your life. I was saying, I'm comfortable now, and you're asking me to do something scary. So many people live in constant fear and don't get to make that decision, but I did not want to step up into the land of risk. And this is where community becomes so important. Because I was blessed to be working with some very caring and compassionate people. People who could have easily said, shut up, Zeb, and get over yourself. But instead, they saw a spark in me that wanted to be involved and help. So they worked with me to find places that I could engage. All right, you don't want to be on the streets. But you know that people will get hurt. So maybe you could help pick up first aid supplies and set up medical kits for those of us who are marching. Well, of course I can do that. That's an easy enough thing. Perhaps would you be willing to use your car to help pe pick people up? People that need to leave the march because it got too rough and dangerous for them. Help them get to safety. Of course I'm going to help people get to safety. How could I say no? And then finally, the, when people are arrested, will you be able to give them rides home from the detention centers? They kept looking for further and further ways for me to have engagement with the movement, for me to step up, pushing my comfort levels a little here, a little there, further and further to help me bypass my own insecurities. And not all of us are always so lucky to have people who will do that. So we have to remember, remember to take extra risks to put our comfort just a little further. And remember that when other people are struggling to look for that spark inside of them that says, I wanna help and help them find those ways to engage. And this may have been either a brilliant strategy on my colleague's part, or maybe just a dire need for volunteers. Could have been a little bit of both, but they got me engaged. And the more involved I became, the more comfortable with risks that I was. And then with taking further and further risks. It was within these activist circles that I began to see real hope for justice. I might not see a 10-point plan to transform all of society, but instead I saw the vision of society that we wanted, the community that we saw, was embodied in front of me. People were sharing their resources. People were risking themselves for one another. The voices of the marginalized, of those most affected, were being heard and amplified. The stories of one person connecting to another and showing how interrelated our lives are. Everything I was reading about and studying about was crystallizing in front of me. Not that things were perfect. Tensions were high. People would get into squabbles. You know, we were still all humans with all the baggage that that brings. But there was hope, and I saw the possibility of change 
a possibility that I would not have seen had I not gotten involved. And that act of taking risks, of taking that next step, of committing further into the work, of willing to lean into that change, is what's transformational, not just for ourselves, but for society too. And as easy as it is to want to wait until all the answers are spelled out, as easy as it is to fall into that temptation, we need to know that that does nothing to help build the cause for justice. It takes a lot to begin this work and to keep going with it. And I know there have been plenty of times that I've been called out for my unexamined privileges or my microaggressions. And I expect, and honestly, I hope to be called out for those again, because that will mean that I've continued to take risks, continue to put myself in an area where I'm not certain, but trying, trying to learn and work and listen to other people, to hear their pain, to know that we are a community together. And while doing that work, I know there'll be other times that people's pain will be projected onto me, whether or not it's fair or not. It's just a place where people's emotions are raw. Because as beautiful as these groups are, it's hard on us all. A multicultural and intersectional society or community of individuals will make mistakes. And the probabilities for miscommunication can be so high. And we all have to realize that. Sometimes we have to remember that we're all doing the best we can. And as hard as it is, we need to trust our friends and our allies knowing that we will need to forgive one another and equally to learn from our own mistakes, especially when we unintentionally hurt someone else. I've never talked to anyone doing this work that hasn't both felt attacked by their allies and hasn't also transgressed against their own allies. It's messy work that we're doing. And thinking of that messiness, and that complication brings to mind a book that I've been reading lately called The Egyptians, A Radical History of Egypt's Unfinished Revolution by journalist Jack Schechner, who was involved in the People's Uprising at Tahir Square a few years ago. He writes, Of course Tahir wasn't really perfect, not as an occupied space, not as a revolutionary strategy, not as an alternative political community. The dynamics of the square were volatile and assaults on its sovereignty, both rhetorical and physical, bred paranoia and defensiveness. At times, sentiments that could sometimes manifest themselves in the Badan as internal censorship and even violence. But how could it be perfect when it was a living, breathing, perpetual feat of learning and invention? If perfection is the litmus test for legitimate expressions of change, Challenges to the status quo can only ever come from on high, and thus offer no real challenge to the status quo at all. To hear could only ever have been messy, only ever have been imperfect, and in that way it attained a scrubby, a scrubby sort of perfection unique to itself. For people to garner the will to rise up against oppression rather than to submit, subvert, and make do, they need to reach for the stars, yet the stars are invariably beyond reach. 
He goes further to describe naysaying commentators of the movement. They sound offensive over never having taken the leap themselves and delighted when those who did met walls along the way because they think that those walls retrospectively justify their own timidity. It is also com- it is always comforting to play the role of the rational time-worn realist because it's always more comforting to accept the world as it is than to brave failure in pursuit of change. If believing in a different world and beginning to build it is the hallmark of a naive fool, then let the fool spread far and wide. His words really struck me. And they seem to apply to every protest and every act of mass resistance that I've ever seen. There will always be the naysayers, always be opposition to those who are willing to take risks and dream. Whether it's Paul Robeson challenging the House Un-American Activities Committee, whether it's marching in the streets to fight for black lives, or standing against a dictator, building a new world is uncertain. It has to be. It's new territory. Ending oppression may, honestly, not be possible, because new forms of injustice will always continue to evolve and adapt. So if we wait for perfection, where do we get? Which is why I try not to think of justice as a noun, as something that can be achieved, but instead it's a verb, something that we have to do. Instead of waiting for the end game, we must look at how justice is constantly emerging, the movements that are always building it. It's not found in the abstract, but in the messy process of working together to counter oppression. Justice is found in the risks, the failures, the hurt feelings, and the learning and adapting and trying again. In this way, justice is the constant emerging voice, the hope we are all waiting for. And it's just waiting for those of us out there to build it. We have to remember that joy beats oppression, but oppression never goes away. But so too our joy is there, waiting to emerge, waiting to go on and on. Thank you. Building, building, we are building. We are building. 
see a humble indeed. This is the time in our morning when folks get a chance to share a reflection, something that sparked a thought or moved them, inspiring you into the week and months ahead. Uh, we'll start with a moment of silence, let everybody kind of collect their thoughts, and then if you have something you'd like to share, please raise your hand, I'll bring the microphone, you can stand if you're able, say your name, hold the mic close, and share your thoughts. 